Hey people, I'm Juba, a London-born, Essex-raised and Berlin-based DJ and welcome to the Assurance podcast. Last year, I released Assurance, the documentary that I made about the experiences of female DJs in Nigeria. After its release, I realised that there were so many other stories to explore and I wanted to continue the conversations that were started with the first documentary. In each episode, I'm going to be talking to inspiring women DJs in the global south and delving into their own personal journeys, their local music scenes and the impact of their social context on their careers and lives. This podcast is sponsored by Adidas and Zalando as part of their Share Her Power campaign, which is all about camaraderie over competition and women empowering women. I want women to like be able to twerk and dance however they feel and wear whatever the hell they want without worry of um, their safety. Yeah, or not wear what they want. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hey, hey, people, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Assurance Podcast. And today, for the first ever debut episode, I am joined by Kampire from Uganda. How exciting. (laughs) So Kampire is amongst East Africa's most exciting DJs and a core member of Kampala's Nyege Nyege collective and label. She was one of Mixmag's picks for top 10 breakthrough DJs of 2018. And in 2019, her mixes made it onto end of year best mix lists on Pitchfork and Fact. Her Rinse FM radio residency has seen her shine a light on other East African DJs and artists, including Hibotep, Fraser Mostrix and Katu Diosis. And Campire is also a co-founder of the art installation Saluni, which explores black hair as a science, a culture and art. And the experiential project has travelled across the world from Uganda to Ghana, the UK and Sao Tome. That definitely rhymes. <laughs> so Campire has literally, when I say literally, killed it, killed it on dance floors and festivals and clubs and everything across the globe. She is literally as close to goals as one can get and I actually can't stand the concept of goals anyway so it's taken a lot for me to say that but yeah I'm so excited to have Campire starting off my assurance podcast journey with me hey thanks for having me Mate, thanks for coming on. As I say, I'm actually happy that you're joining me for the first ever episode because I don't know, you have a very <laughs> calm energy, just so unbothered. And I feel like you being here, being totally cool and unbothered makes the whole process easier. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be fun. I think so. I hope so. Um, how are you? Um, I'm all right, I guess. It's um, been like a really mad year for everybody. <laughs> and it's it's, I think where it's like sinking in that we've been at this for a year. So a year is like a really long time. I think that when we first got into the pandemic, a lot of people were like, oh yeah, you do mm-hmm. two weeks and I'll be back. But in March, when they started like closing airports, I was like, oh, I'd better go home and like really settle in for the long haul. But I don't think anyone <laughs> expected that. You know, we'd be here a year later and things... <laughs> don't really like look or sound better than it did a year ago. <laughs> do you know what? My manic laughing is actually a coping mechanism because I'm like, ah, if I don't laugh, I will actually cry. Do you know what's really funny? I remember when lockdown started, I checked in on you and I was like, Campire, how's it going? And I remember you saying, it's okay for now, but like if things don't pick yeah. up in the summer, I'm screwed. <laughs> and lol, Literally. look at us now. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm definitely in a better position than most people. And I'm very much aware that mm. like so many people have it so much worse. And then 
in Uganda, like cases are not as high as they are or have been in some places in Europe. So, you know, you just have to hold on to those good things and those positives and sort of try and maintain perspective and just keep putting one foot in front of the other every day because otherwise I think of nuts. No, I definitely think um, it has been a case of adaptability and yeah, I think a lot of us at the beginning of the situation were like, God, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And here we are. I mean, you know, we're both in good health and not to rub it into anyone, but it could be worse essentially. And actually talking about the situation, I remember when like COVID first started and everyone was like, if this happens in Africa, it's game over. You know, Africa's going to be, I don't know, drowned and overwhelmed in COVID. And actually a lot of African countries have been okay in a way. Yeah, there was a lot of predictions of doom at the beginning. And that's, you know, some of it is fair because like our our health systems are really not in a great position in many African Mm. countries, um, definitely here in Uganda. But thankfully, I think there have been a number of other factors that have sort of kept caseloads lower here. Just the fact that we do a lot of things outdoors. Vitamin D has been a factor. I think there's like some sort of genetic component. (laughs) But of course, like research is literally my friend was telling me that it was something to do with the fact that Europeans have Neanderthal genes and Africans don't. And literally I was like, I don't know if that's science or (laughs) somebody's auntie's WhatsApp forward. So that's literally like where we are because I don't know about like your government, but you know, a lot of people don't trust, have a lot of trust yeah. in their governments. Like the Ugandan government is sort of using these lockdowns to, um, to like clamp down on opposition politics. It's like become an, a political thing. You don't know if you can trust the numbers. I think that Neanderthal gene is quite funny, but I don't know how it stands up because ultimately in places like the UK, in places like the USA, it has been documented that actually black people and people of, you know, ethnic minorities in these countries have suffered worse. And that's, you know, there's socioeconomic reasons why. So I don't know about that, but maybe it's the weather, maybe it's the younger populations. Yeah, just thankful for our blessing. Thankful indeed. And you know what's crazy? The last time I saw you in real life was actually when we DJ together in London in Jazz Cafe. Do you remember that? Um, Yeah, that was um, one of the last gigs that I played and literally one of the funnest gigs that I've played so far. It was so, so fun. I think because it was a Boko Boko event, like all the black people in London came out and it was just really like super hype, you know, the way we Africans do on a dance floor. And then it was like competition from West Africans, Mm -hmm. East Africans and Caribbeans and like you play a song and people would just like really go nuts. So it was really quite a fun send off, I think. Yeah, that was a proper last main gig. And I remember your Uganda crew came and showed the fuck up. Like they were there with their flags. They were like, Camp here, right? I loved it. It was such a fun (laughs) night, man. You would have known that was our last gig. It's almost for ceremonial. (laughs) If I'd have known, eh? Yeah, it was like at the beginning of of a tour for me. So after that, I was supposed to like, go around Europe and then spend, do some dates in Asia as well. And then none of that happened. So. <laughs> but do you know what? One thing is we're all in the same boat. So hopefully when things pick up in 2055, we can go out there again in our Zimmer frames <laughs> and walking sticks. <laughs> Let's get into the chat about you, DJ. And as I said, this is the Assurance Podcast. Um, just talking to loads of women in the DJ world around the global south to get an idea of what they're about and share some wisdom. So, Kampiri, I'm trying to understand your journey into DJing. So, when did you first touch a pair of decks? Um, I think the first 
first time I touched a pair of decks was maybe like a month or two after I had first started DJing. I first started playing like just <laughs> Wait, on one my second. Laptop. Literally, <laughs> okay. yeah. I was like, I would go to, we had this dive bar where we'd throw nigga nigga parties and I would just go plug in my laptop into the system and use virtual DJ. And then maybe like, a month or so afterwards, people were like, oh, here's, you know, here's a tractor. Here's a, I had like a little tiny, I think it's called a hero. Mm. And it's like super old. I think it was like one of the first editions that someone had donated. Derek, who's one of the founders of Nyege Nyege, and he gave it to me. And I think like one or two things didn't work, but it did the thing. So that was the one that I started off with. And then I also like, gave it away to another young female DJ. So it sort of feels like you just kind of pass, mm. pass along the beginner's decks. <laughs> the beginner's laptop legacy. That's so funny because there's definitely some DJ purists out there who'll be like, how dare you play a gig without having actually touched decks? So I think that's quite funny that your first set was literally you on a computer. All power to you, to be honest. Yeah, and also like the thing with CDJs, I only started playing on CDJs, I think, in my mm. second tour. So... We just don't have access to the same equipment. And I think even if you're in Europe, like it's not so easy to get access to proper CDJs, club standard CDJs and figure out how to play and how to use them and to be able to practice on them enough so that you get comfortable um, and develop your own style. So I really like only have middle fingers for people who are (laughs) purists about equipment because it just like locks out a huge majority of people who are not white men who are already who already have access to the scene. But lucky for me, like, even when I was carrying my little controller around Europe, like, no promoter or, like, fellow DJ on the lineup ever gave me Mm. flack about it. In fact, they were the ones who were like, it doesn't matter, you know, what equipment you use as long as the sound is good. And then it's, like, you know, wankers in the boiler room comments were like, oh, my God, she's using a a $100 controller. I'm like, my dude... (laughs) I live in Uganda. Not to chill so. out. <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah, there are these schools of thought which actually can be quite elitist, especially like crate diggers as well, people who collect vinyls. All these things often come down to access and you can't just necessarily wake up with a pair of CDJs in your room if you are DJing from maybe Kampala or East London you just don't have the access to these sorts of things. So, no, I think it's really good that you actually were just like, yeah, I'm going to play on a freaking laptop. And it's more, I guess... What is more important is the music, I guess, potentially, some would say. Some would argue not. Who knows? I think first gigs are always really fun. (laughs) I have a horror story for my first gig. Um, (laughs) Let's go to yours first. How was it? Um, I had a really fun first gig. I um, sort of fell into DJing kind of by accident. I was always that person who, like, at the party wanted to control the Mm. playlist. And so I got involved with organising Nyega Nyega Festival. And after we had done the first edition... Um, I think we were at a party and Derek, who I spoke about earlier, was like, oh, you should really come and play at Hollywood, which was the dive bar where we like threw these parties um, during the season in between the festivals. And he was like, oh, you really should come and play. And so I did. I just brought my laptop and, like I said, didn't know how to DJ, was using virtual DJ and 
not really even mixing at all and just like fading in and out of the different songs but people responded so well and I had such a great time that I just mm. sort of kept doing it and I think the reason why I kept doing it is because like the Nyege crew and like the audience that we've built up the community that we've built up people are so open and welcoming and as long as the music makes you dance then people don't really you know, worry about the other stuff. We talk a lot about safe spaces, but you actually had a safe space to genuinely learn and it was supportive and you didn't feel the judgment and the sort of critique of others, which is actually really cool. And like, look at where you are now. So it definitely has uh, played a part. But um, yeah, I think you're lucky <laughs> that your first gig was actually so fun and carefree. <laughs> My first gig was an absolute mess, honestly. Like, so long story short, I was part of this DJ collective called Boko Boko, which I've spoken about in the past, this DJ collective that basically taught me how to DJ. And so luckily through them, I was able to get my first gig in their party. And I remember I prepared the set for such a long time. Like I perfected it on my like little tractor controller. I'd even invited a DJ who sort of mentored me and spoke to me about how to DJ um, on, in the past. I was like, come to this set. I'm going to do my first ever gig and I was really excited. And I got there and like one of those little technicalities that a new DJ will be really thrown off by. I hadn't analysed my tracks in record box, which isn't a big deal, but if you don't know what you're doing and you don't even know how to beat match naturally, um, I plugged my tracks in and like no music information came up. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Half of my songs <laughs> didn't even show up. And I'd invite all these people like making this big deal about my first ever set and it bombed. When I say it bombed, I couldn't mix a track and I'd like really meticulously planned out a whole set of songs and transitions. It all went tits up. I started crying behind the decks. <laughs> I was like crying. <laughs> I was crying and DJing at the same time. And then this couple came up to me and they asked for oh, Pharrell God. Williams Happy. You know that song, right? <laughs> Considering I was playing like dance on Afrobeats and I was like, go away. And I shouted at them. And then my best friend shouted at me for being unprofessional. And then I started crying <laughs> again while I was DJing. <laughs> Then and then after my set, I literally ran off and ran behind the curtain behind the stage and cried oh, for the bless. rest of the night. <laughs> Honestly, and bless the woman who came to watch me. She was like really desperately trying to like make me feel like I wasn't flopping really hard. And she was like, you know, twiddling little a few knobs here and there to help me with my transitions. And it was so <laughs> shocking. <laughs> so it was like <laughs> The worst ever. However, it did actually help me for future because honestly, after that set, nothing can throw me off. Yeah. I think that one of the things that you you learn through DJing and playing live is that like you can really suck and have the worst uh, the worst sets, but then you know tomorrow you have to play again or next week you have to play again. So exactly. To and to be honest, it. it wasn't a live stream. It wasn't like people weren't necessarily filming me, so it's just there in the past in memory. It's not. There's no evidence of it. But that was honestly the worst set ever. All right, cool. So we've spoken a bit about your journey into DJing, which actually was quite nice and supportive and carefree, I'd say. So kudos to you. Not all of us can have that. And tell us about your country, um, what's going on in Uganda right now, what's the current situation. I know you recently had an election, which was quite uh, dramatic in some ways. You just disappeared from the online world for a while. Um, yeah, tell us about what's been going on in Uganda. Yeah, I mean, it's been like really to be honest, I'm not sure if I can curse in this podcast. Well, we fucking <laughs> have shit in school. Yeah, <laughs> I guess you bleep out. Thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, it's just been really kind of rubbish, especially considering that it's been a pandemic. So, like having we had elections last month, and uh, we have a a president who's been in power for 
over 35 years now at this point and really mm. shows no signs of wanting to let go of power. So even though we've had quite a charismatic young politician who's challenged him in the last election, there's been a lot of violence, um, people being jailed, people being tortured, people being kidnapped. The internet was turned off for five days and even though it's back now, we still don't have access to social media without a VPN. Um, so it's mm-hmm. just not a great time in Uganda's history. But when you think about the context of Uganda's history, like every time we end up in the news, whenever I go on Twitter, you see like Nigerians or Kenyans in the, in the comments and they're like, oh, Ugandans deserve this. Why don't they protest? Why don't they go out on the streets? But if you think about it, we've never had a peaceful transition of power in like 50, 60 years of independence. And then also Museveni owns the entire security apparatus. So even though people were protesting in November, like something like 50 people were killed and not protesters, just people who were like going about their daily lives. So when you live in a country where security operatives can like kidnap you off the street without any repercussions or like, you know, shoot you for pretty much no reason or now that we have COVID, it's like, oh, you are out past curfew. Therefore, that guy deserves to die. Um, yeah, people are not going to be like creating change is never a simple process, but definitely not in our our context. But we just sort of hope that you know all of these elections, even though the outcome isn't the outcome that we wanted, you just hope that it sort of moves the needle towards change and towards mm. like a better situation, um, and that you know progress is not linear. So we're just waiting to see, I guess, what happens if they're going to give us our social media back. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's important. <laughs> um, but I find it interesting that Bobby Wine, who's a musician, ran for office. Like, I don't know. What does that say about Uganda that a musician is running for president? Well, I mean, it's a, it's sort of a surprise to us too because we don't live in a context mm. where the arts are valued. But we have a very young population. I think the median age is... 17. Whoa. Whoa. That is young. (laughs) Yeah, we have like crazy urbanization rates. So like everyone is moving to Kampala and to the urban areas. We have like a lot of youth unemployment. So if you think about, you know, the people who most need to see a change in this country, it tends to be young people. I think it's interesting in someone like Uganda, yeah, that a musician is going for president. Because I know in Nigeria, there's a guy called Faust, I think, and he's really political, but he's also a musician. And uh, there's like maybe a correlation between young populations that don't feel like they're being heard by the older establishment who lean to things that they recognise, i.e. musicians, to speak for them. Um, and how does your social context, like being in Uganda, impact the creative world as well? Because I know when I came to DJ Nyege Nyege a couple of years ago, there was a lot of problems with... The, uh, the old school leaders. <laughs> I don't want to get you in trouble, by the way. Please, I don't want to get you exiled. <laughs> so, like, it's okay if you want to be guarded. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a difficult context to be an artist or to, like, even put on events. For example, when people visit, they're like, oh, Uganda, it's so much fun. The pineapples, the weather, people <laughs> would love to party and people are so friendly. But sort of once you spend a bit more time here, you see, like, some of the challenges in our context so you spoke about Nyege Nyege and how the past couple of years we kind of like get in trouble with the government establishment because it's seen as something that quote unquote promotes homosexuality 
just because it's a space in which everyone is welcome. And then, you know, people think raves, festivals, electronic music, they're like all Western excesses and mm. we've come to corrupt our children and all of that jazz. So it's not an easy context in which to have parties sure. <laughs> or like free events um, where everyone is welcome. And it's only been made more difficult by the pandemic because now we're all under curfew. So you literally, there's no free or open space for people to like have events now without the security apparatus having an excuse to shut it down or throw you in jail. So yeah, it's definitely been a tough year. And, you know, even in 2018, when we were having these problems, things were already difficult. So things are not getting easier for those of us who are like in the arts or in alternative spaces. I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about governments using this moment in time as an excuse to do what they want, i.e., oh, there's a virus going on. Okay, no more parties for 20 years. Um, but, you know, you, that said, though, on a positive note, when I did come to Nyege Nyege, it was officially the best festival and just party experience I've had in my life. And I don't say that lightly because I have partied my way around this world, my friend. <laughs> I know my I know my parties, OK? And it was incredible. The vibes, the energy, there's just something about, you know, I want, don't want to call it a Western festival, but that festival concept that I'm so much more used to in the UK or in Europe in this African context where people really live and dance, like live music in a certain, in a different way that's, for me, more in, ingrained in the culture as opposed to you go to a dance floor and you have your fun there. It was just like all-encompassing. It was incredible. Um, and it was great, but it was also almost like a, a nice little resistance and a triumph when, you know, you have certain people in government who are claiming that, <laughs> I don't know, the festival is encouraging people to sleep with dogs. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> if you ever come to the festival, I think you think differently. I think that um, part of what you were saying about like musicians turning politicians, I think that people trust musicians much more than we trust politicians um, and artists, generally speaking. And I think one of the things that I've learned in these past couple of years is that like a party is not just a party. It can be resistance. It can be like you creating a safe space for you and your friends to like let go and listen to the music that you love is very powerful and sometimes when people react with repression or with suspicion then you kind of know that what you're doing is important because it's making a lot of people angry <laughs> i think when people say music is political the dance was political it really is not an understatement like it does have a certain power and a lot of change has come through things like music um we're here to change the world people one dj set at a time <laughs> that's my slogan <laughs> um <laughs> Moving on around the social context, how is it for women in your scene? What are the intersections that impact your experience? Um, I think that in the mainstream music industry, things are very much the way you see them around the world in that it's male-dominated, but we've been lucky enough in the underground to sort of carve out this space nice. in which people who wouldn't normally have access. So I'm surrounded by like women DJs, the Nyege Nyege crew is heavily leans on like women acts and women DJs. And yeah, I think that the underground, because it's by nature alternative, it sort of has fewer barriers to entry for women and other minorities. So I've been lucky enough that like, I'm definitely surrounded by a lot of cool women DJs mm. here. People like Katu, like Darlene, DK, Turkana, in Kenya, the people like Coco M, DJ Ivy, 
in Ethiopia, Lady Hash, Hibotep here in Uganda. So it's I've been sure. lucky enough to come up in a time where or in a space where women are not necessarily the the minority. That's definitely a recurring theme, isn't it? Like in these underground spaces, these more resistance-based spaces, you do get more women, more non-binary people, more, you know, LGBTQ representation. Are you bothered, though, about women and female DJs or women DJs breaking into the mainstream more? Or are you like, nah, leave that to them? I mean, I love women. They're like my community, my first audience, the people who that, like, I want to dance when I'm playing. When I go out to play, I want women to feel safe in the audience. I want women to like be able to twerk and dance however they feel and wear whatever <laughs> the hell they want without worry of um, their safety. Yeah, or not wear what they want. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I think that even if I wasn't, you know, a feminist, which I am, I couldn't be in the scene without caring about the political aspect of women's participation. And even if you're like completely ignorant, like me, you come from a safe space where, you know, no one cares that you're a woman DJ. Once you start playing out and like the bouncer won't let you behind the decks because he thinks you're a groupie or like the sound engineer is like talking to you like you're an idiot or whatever. Um, Or even like worrying for your own safety when you're playing out late at night. I think those are, things that impact women specifically and like make it necessary for you to care about like women's access to such spaces and sort of like build a community of other women who care about similar things. So like whenever I travel, people are like, oh, you must meet this woman DJ or like you should play for these guys because they have women friendly parties or LGBT safe parties. It's sort of a natural progression that you, yeah, you start to associate with other women and other women who have similar concerns to you. Mm. And maybe like bringing that to a wider context. I still think it's mad that like a woman won't be allowed behind a desk because someone might think she's a groupie when actually she's a DJ. That's that's mad to me. I'm like, huh? Um, however, I always find it funny though when people are like, you know, I hate it when men assume that women don't have any technical skills. And I'm sorry, but I am that representation of a woman who cannot do I remember one time I was DJing and literally for half an hour, I was like calling the tech guy. I was like, look, my DJ decks are not working. I can't play. I'm going to go home. And he came and he literally like pushed up the knob, the, like the volume knob on like the side that wasn't the main channel. And my God, I felt so stupid. He looked at me like, you absolute <laughs> idiot. And I was like, my friend, I've let down my entire gender. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, but I'm sure there's a lot of women, a lot of men who probably yeah. have done dumb shit like that somewhere in the world. <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, I've definitely been that person too, where people are like, oh, you just didn't like move the fader, you idiot. But like, if, you're a man who does that, then it doesn't reflect on your entire gender. Like exactly, said, gender. Like, I'm letting the side down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Similar freedom to just like not know what we're doing. And I mean, now that I've had this experience, I'm definitely more interested in like the technical aspects, and I sort of want to like organize workshops sure. or whatever, so that women DJs also have like this sort of bird's eye view of the other side of music but you know we shouldn't have to if i just want to like do one thing and like make 
Violet remixes, for example, and that I don't know how to do anything <laughs> else, but this is the one thing that I yeah, do that. Sure. And that, that you're right as, you know, an artist. But I do think, just generally speaking, in terms of being able to hold your own, I think there's a real power that comes in just knowing stuff, like learning the technical side behind things, because then you won't be left out in the cold, relying on anyone like a damsel in distress. <laughs> Amen on that. Amen to myself. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by Adidas and Zalando as part of their Share Her Power campaign, encouraging camaraderie over competition amidst women. It's all about women uplifting women. So in the spirit of this support, this camaraderie between women uplifting one another, Campire, um, what advice would you give to women who want to get into DJing or who are DJing um, in your region, in Uganda, in East Africa, in Africa? Because um, I'm sure there are a lot of people who look up to you and basically want to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, well, I think that for any woman who wants to get into DJing or music, that they should just start. I When I play, I meet so many women who come up to me afterwards and they're like, oh my God, I've always wanted to DJ, but I've never done it because mm. of X, Y, and Z. And I think that a lot of the first barriers are our own. I think that it's so much easier for men when they're like 16 years old to be like, hey, I want to be a DJ and do electronic music and get, get loads of girls or whatever. Whereas for women, it feels like we're not allowed to try things out unless we're immediately perfect. So we, I guess, feel we either create these barriers for ourselves or, you know, our spaces create these barriers for us in that you have to try and suck at things before you actually get good. And that getting good at something just comes from doing it. So I would say that that's my first advice to women is just do it. You know, just play, just download virtual DJ on your computer and play at parties, play in your bedroom, record your mixes, practice and enjoy, you know, the urge that drove you to try it out. Because I think when you first start at something that like magical curiosity that you have or that energy or motivation you have to learn how to DJ or to like put two songs together is real magic and that you should follow that, whether or not that's music or, you know, whatever interests you. Um, I do think it's harder for African artists to like get a foothold in this industry just because so many barriers to mobility, just besides the expense, just the amount of hassle that we have to go through in order to get visas, in order to travel. And I guess... You know, if you're going through that, then, like, my inbox is always open. You can send me a message and I'll be happy to, like, give you advice about what has worked for me and for other African artists who, who want to travel. But I think that more important than, you know, touring is sort of creating a scene where you are. And, like, if you listen to alternative music and you want to hear it out on big speakers, then you should, you know, throw your own party or, like, support other DJs who play similar music, support other scenes or parties that do events in that area. And that's how you sort of create a creative scene in which people get better, in which people compete, in which people are able to practice and in which people get known outside of their own context. Because I don't think that I would have a career or that anyone would be that interested in what I'm doing if it wasn't for Nyege Nyege 
and like all the other artists in Uganda and East Africa who are putting out interesting and crazy, wonderful music and sort of showing the world what we have to offer creatively and putting themselves out there and SoundCloud and Bandcamp and all those places. And I don't think I would be a DJ if it wasn't for, you know, all the people who stood next to me at the decks and were like, oh, try this or learn how to do this or listen to this music. People who gave me their hard drives, you know, people here like Jinku, who's a Kenyan DJ, Dark Meme, who is a Ugandan DJ, just like people who have been just so free to like share their skills and their interests with me as well. I don't really remember what question I was answering now. <laughs> started talking. No, you were just like reading off some wisdom there. <laughs> I think what you said about focusing on your own scene is also really important. As a as a British-born, European, passported human... Oh no, I'm British now. I haven't got a European passport. <gasps> Brexit. Anyway, <laughs> oh my God, my life is over. Anyway, as a British person um, who's sort of grown up in this world and there's such a cultural dominance of the West, and I think a lot of the time validation from the West um, equates to you having made it. And it's like, no, actually, we have our own scenes and we can also build up our own musical ecosystems here and not focus on us making it being, okay, traveling and touring around the entire world. It is also probably really unfortunate that certain passports, like a Ugandan passport, just come under so many more barriers to travel. And it's so funny seeing like British people complaining about how Brexit's going to impact their touring abilities. And it's like, <laughs> welcome to the rest of the world. And also we won't have it that hard anyway, because right. we still have British passports and we will be fine. But yeah, I think there's a balance between, you know, mm-hmm. trying to work out how to actually have your fair share of attention in the international space whilst also maybe bringing the international space to your context as well and as Campire said her DMs are open yeah. um, no DMs asking her out for dinners or anything or like you know <laughs> just advice May, I don't know PayPal me I don't know what your, what your thoughts are on that <laughs> but hey <laughs> So on that vein as well, um, I also, as I say, this is about, you know, women empowering women. It's part of a Share Her Power campaign. So are there any collectives or groups in your region that you want to shout out who are doing really good things for women in music, minority groups? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that here we have, like, we have Nyege Nyege, which we've spoken about. We also have Anti-Mask Collective, which throws amazing, like, parties and events um, and prioritizes women and people who aren't cis men. Pussy Party in Joburg has done like really amazing things and sort of spread the work that they're doing kind of across the globe and sort of these networks that have come out of the party, I think, impacted the scene globally. I think there's a lot of power when like people come together. So what I said earlier about creating your scene or your collective, I think is super important because it's not something that you can do as like a singular artist. But when we work together we create something that's so much more more powerful, I think. Beautiful. Campire for president. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're coming to the last section of the show, of the podcast. It's been great talking to you. And I want to go back to your career. I like to reminisce on moments. Um, so, Campire, can you share with us that no moment you had during your career when you really doubted your decision to DJ? Oh man, I mean, I think that this pandemic has been really tough because the only sets that we sort of get to play are like online sets. And to be honest, I hate oh, God. these live stream <laughs> sets so much because it's like, 
all the hard parts of DJing without any of the fun parts and without any of like that um, in real life energy. <laughs> After the, I think, sixth or seventh request to do an online set, you're just like, okay, how much are you paying me and how many people are going to see this? Because it's going to require a level of suffering for me that I'm not sure that I'm prepared to undertake. So I really like cannot wait until I'm like, in a club somewhere at three in the morning next to the speakers, like feeling the bass in my body or like just exchanging oh that real energy with the people who are with you in the moment. Cause I think that's really what DJing is about. Um, so I really miss it. <laughs> sure. I think this has definitely made us realize what, as you say, what DJing is about and what we love about DJing. Cause I cannot agree with you more. The idea of like standing there in front of a screen. I mean, to be fair, I do quite enjoy sometimes feeling like I'm DJing in my bedroom, but when you do these live streams, it's like, you have to be so precise because people actually notice your transitions and they notice when you fuck up. And when you fuck up, there's someone in the comments going, Oh, she can't DJ. Um, whereas like in a live gig, you mess up, you go, Oh, and then everyone gets some of it. Do you know what I mean? No one even notices. Yeah. Um, so it is definitely all the stress of a DJ set without the fun bits that make it, you know, make you look around and go, wow, I'm so happy I'm doing this. And on that note, actually, can you share a yes moment when you looked around and you were like, I've made the best decision to become a DJ? I think that probably one of my best sets ever. Yeah, I'm just, now I'm just like reminiscing about those like high energy moments. And even when it's bad, even when I've had a bad set and like, I don't know how to use the equipment and the flow is just not going. At the end of it, I'm still like, this was great, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But I sure. think that my best set ever was maybe 2018 or 2017. I think it was the third Nyege Nyege. <gasps> and um, I, rem I didn't have enough time to like, prepare my set properly because I was also working in the press tent and then there were so many like amazing DJs who were there and I kept hearing like songs that I had planned to play in my set <laughs> in yeah, other people's sure. sets so I was like feeling a bit unprepared and like a bit nervous about it but there's something about like first of all the magic of Nyege Nyege we were at that tropical disco stage which is right by the water and just the energy there is incredible like you said people are people literally come to dance for three days and you see them on the last day and they're like i haven't slept it was the greatest time of my life <laughs> but um the energy there was just so magical and i think at the end of the set i played Zankalewa, which is one of my favorite songs to play which is sort of a song that has kind of followed me from my entire childhood which i feel really nostalgic about but i didn't necessarily realize that other people liked it as much as I do. So it had the set had just like flowed really well. And so I played this last song. And then when I ended the set, people were still singing along. And I was just like Aww. almost in tears. Oh, like, that's so nice. That energy of like connecting to people in a way that words can't do. I think it's really like beautiful and powerful, especially for me, who's like kind of an introvert sometimes and, you know, feels awkward or anxious about like talking to people. That magic of connecting to people without words, I think has been one of the greatest gifts 
that DJ has given me. So I'll like always sure. remember that set. Yeah. Do you know what? It's funny you said you're an introvert because I definitely feel introvert vibes from you when you DJ, but I find it almost inspiring because you have this really calm, chilled energy <laughs> when you play, but then around you is absolute pandemonium. <laughs> and I have to say, do you know what? I feel like we had kind of similar experiences at Nyege Nyege because my best ever DJ set was also on that stage at Nyege Nyege. I think it was 2018. And I remember I played on the main stage and, my, and mm. it was really fun. That set went really well, but it got cut short. <laughs> and I remember I had this like diva hissy fear at Derek being like, my set was cut short and like, I'm really annoyed because it was like, whatever. <laughs> and he was like, okay, Juba, it's fine. We'll find you another set. And then he was like, do you want to play at the disco set in like an hour? And I was like, uh, um, well, <laughs> now that you say it, I mean, I had also only prepared that one set, so I don't really know what I'm going to do. And so I got a bit, a bit, a bit tipsy and I just thought, you know, because usually when I do these like big sets, I prepare quite a lot. Mm-hmm. But I just thought, fuck it, I'm going to play what the hell I want. And it was insane. It was such a fun set. And your mm. version, my version of your song was when I played Premier Gawu, because that's like an African classic. And the set went mad and like someone threw money at me. <laughs> and I was in this sort of slightly tipsy days and it was just energy and dancing and insanity and colours. And it was one of those moments I looked around and I was like, man, I don't care what my mum said. Yeah. I don't care what my dad said. I made the right decision. I'm so happy to be here. So <laughs> honestly, <laughs> high five to Good that. Time. <laughs> amazing time life-changing times I don't think people understand that energy that insanity it's just those life-affirming moments and it's funny because it's DJing and people mm. are like oh DJ and you just like play music it's like nah 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 when you're in the in the driving seat you know what I mean so to finish off can you share a message that you've received as a DJ from a woman that has inspired you uplifted you empowered you I think that the most recent example I can think of is I I can't remember why I was tweeting bad sister, but she like replied and she was like, you inspire me. And I was like, I inspire you. (laughs) She's just such an amazing artist who's also like from the global South and who literally doesn't give a fuck. And like, when I saw her play at Nyege Nyege, I was like, wow, this is an artist who, whether or not she's playing in Brazil or in Berlin or in Uganda, she like really knows how to connect to an audience wherever that audience is from. And she just had this like poise and confidence that I absolutely loved. Um, and she's really one of my favorite artists. So it was really wonderful to hear from her. I'm making an impact, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's a nice affirmation. Like someone that you look up to somehow looks up to you and you're like, oh, I must be doing something right then. Um, yeah, Bad Sister is so, so sick. I have so much time for that woman. I love her music. I'm a bit of a, a bit of a fangirl sometimes when I talk about her music. Um, but Campire, I feel like we are done here. I feel like you've shared knowledge, you've shared advice, and it's been great talking to you. I've enjoyed these positive vibes between us. And just, yeah, looking back on you as a woman who DJs in, in Uganda, but beyond that, the sort of the context and the world that you come from and um, your passion for the art. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to like listening to the rest of the guests that you have on the podcast. I think it's really dope. And hopefully <laughs> we get to see each other in person soon. Hopefully we get to see each other and DJ with each other because yeah. we always have fun. All right. Thanks, Campire. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. So this has been The Assurance Podcast, a follow-up to my documentary that explored the experiences of female DJs in Nigeria. Assurance, the documentary, focused on women in Lagos' music scene, 
But overall, Assurance is all about spotlighting voices away from the European and North American club scenes, which tend to dominate in conversations around gender and representation in music. And helping me share this empowering conversation has been Adidas and Zalando, who sponsored this podcast as part of their Share Her Power campaign.